This morning we come back to our considerations in God's Word. As that's God's Word is found in the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I guess everybody has their idea of what a popular preacher looks and sounds like. Uh, what are the people like who in seminary or Bible college might get the award of most likely to succeed uh, because we think they have the qualities it takes to be a minister of the gospel because of whatever we think goes into a minister of the gospel. I think if Paul was in modern seminaries, he probably would not get that award of most likely to succeed. He might get the award of no chance at all. So find another thing to do, Paul. Maybe he could be a teacher in a seminary, but a preacher of the gospel, we just don't see God using your kind of, um, of, of, of man. And um, that was an opinion that no doubt people in the Corinthian church also had of the Apostle Paul. Uh, we're influenced largely by uh, television talk show hosts and presenters, as the um, British call them, the people that present the news, the anchor people, and the way in which they can talk so mellifluously in their sounds, even when they talk about the greatest tragedies of the world. Um, they do, well, they learn just to keep their cool. It's not often that a Walter Cronkite's voice breaks when he hears that President Kennedy. Uh, was killed in Dallas. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but Cronkite evidently had quite uh, an, a, 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 a need to control himself because he was just about to break down, and others as well in, uh, when, when tragedies occur. But uh, people are taught today just to say, and um, after this commercial, we'll come back and tell you the next horrible tragedy. And they almost do it as if there was no sense of... Um, any trouble. Um, and so people have their ideas as to what would constitute a good communicator, a good teacher. And um, Paul's model for ministry is just not something that would be accepted in the Roman world and the ancient Greek world. It wouldn't be something necessarily would it be accepted today because it's a model that sees the power of God made manifest in weakness. And the opposers of Paul, the false apostles, uh, super apostles, he derisively calls them in the latter chapters of the letter. Um, they had given their verdict on Paul. And there were some that agreed with him. And remember, some said, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter. But Paul, again, was their founding pastor. And uh, he's writing this letter to win them back to himself. And he doesn't really talk about the false teachers, but he talks very in a positive vein about the nature of true ministry and what it constitutes. It's not the peddler of the goods. Of goods. It's not somebody that goes into business with the gospel. Um, but it's that which, un which renounces everything that's disgraceful, underhanded, um, and is concerned with open statement of the truth, presenting God's word with clarity, um, making ourselves transparent in the minds of the people that we address. We have nothing up our sleeves, nothing of hidden intentions. We, we love you. We're concerned for you. And we're willing to give ourselves for you 
Um, because we serve a God who loves you and a God who is concerned to glorify his name through the preaching of the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the thing that wins over the hearts of people to Paul's kinds of ministry is not Paul's cleverness. It's not his ability to sell the Jesus product. It's the risen Christ himself. It's the fact that he's enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sent forth his spirit, and he's in the work of convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's the blessing of God upon his word that breaks the hardened heart. And he said, as we saw last week in chapter 4, that this ministry that he conducts is a ministry in which everything is placed in the power of the God who created The God who called light to shine in the midst of darkness, he shone in our hearts to reveal the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, that's what the gospel is all about. It's about a new creation. He's going to say that in chapter 5, verse 17. If any man be in Christ, behold a new creation. God's in the work of making a new creation. Well, that idea is not just found in chapter 5. He's been talking about that all along. Because the gospel comes and it brings a new creation. And um, that's the power of God at work. Power that is exhibited in the midst of human weakness. In the midst of, a, of an apostle that is, um, well, he describes himself in chapter, uh, chapter uh, 2 of uh, the first letter. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith would stand not in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Now, the same thing is really what Paul is contending for here. And he says, look at us. Look at us. I mean, we see the glory of the gospel. We see that we have treasures in the gospel. We see we have riches in the gospel. But these treasures, these riches, these excellencies that God brings to human souls through the ministry of his word, it's something that's committed, he says, to jars of clay. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now, if God is not going to speak audibly from heaven, you know, conversion doesn't happen through God speaking with an audible voice from heaven saying, let there be light, as Genesis 1 uh, predicates of the creation narrative. If he's not doing that, uh, then he's going to be working through human beings. And human beings are earthen vessels. We're made of clay. Uh, He formed us dust from the ground and breathed into the man the breath of life. And so uh, that's what God has to deal with, is earthen vessels. He makes human beings to be co-laborers together with him in the gospel. And the question is, why does he do that? Why does he use these jars of clay, these earthen vessels? Well, um, Paul says, first of all, we're all his... his um, his workmanship, right? Created in Christ Jesus for good works. One of the big Old Testament pictures is that of the potter and the clay. God fashions us in accordance with his own wise and sovereign design. And Paul has been a vessel fashioned by God in his own wise and, and sovereign design uh, to be an effective minister of the gospel, even in terms of his human attributes. 
I mean, Paul had an education and a background that enabled him to go into all kinds of situations and amongst all kinds of people. Because he had a Jewish background as a, as a student of Gamaliel in Jerusalem. He had also a background as a Roman citizen. His father obtained Roman citizenship. He also had a background with reference to be a Hellenistic uh, person living in a university city in uh, Cilicia, in Tarsus of Cilicia. And... Um, so Paul was uh, fashioned by God in a way that uh, would lead to open doors and lead to many areas of usefulness. Um, but yet, in the picture of these jars of clay, shapen by the potter, uh, the thought is, this is material that God's using that's extremely fragile. Uh, handle with care. Because the ministers of the gospel are easily broken. They easily can fall into fainting fits. They can easily fall into depression. They can easily fall into a backslidden condition of heart and of mind. Um, and um, God still uses these kinds of people. Very fragile. Um, in a sense, these jars of clay, I think that Paul's referring to, are made of uh, sort of cheap material. They're easily replaceable as well. I mean, God can work through whom he wills. And yet he does work through these jars of clay. And his whole design and intention is that the treasure would stand out in contrast to the jars of clay. That which looks so weak in and of itself. You'd say, how in the world can anything good ever come from that? That poor man has always seemed to be downcast and disheartened and always seems to be having the care of the churches upon him. And look at how he suffers and all of the rest. And yet Paul continues on. He doesn't lose heart as he says in the opening and closing of this, of this chapter. And that idea of losing heart is we don't fail. We're not in the business of failing. We're more than conquerors to him who loved us. So we're going to continue on. And it's through our persevering faith and faithfulness, God displays in jars of clay what Paul says is the surpassing power that belongs to God and not to us. That's God's design. That in the midst of Paul's weakness, in the midst of him being the most unlikely candidate to be the successful apostle and minister of the gospel, God's power shines forth with surpassing um, power. So that you say, look, it's not Paul, it's, uh, it's God. You know, if God was using the sort of person that would ever place and position you ever put him in you knew he would be successful and there are people in the world that are like that that whatever they choose to do they're going to be successful um, you know the old idea of a person that's able to sell ice, ice boxes to Eskimos <laughs> what's less needed they're going to be able to sell it though um, because they have that ability and you'd say well whatever they do they're going to be successful they'll be successful preachers They'll be persuasive, and they'll be charismatic, and they will shine. And you'd say, well, that's just them. That's just them. And do you really see the power of God? Sometimes you think you see the power of God, because their charismatic personality just seems to be so dynamic and different from what you normally see. And you say, oh, well, that must be the power of God. And then you see, you know, a funny story was told, not a funny story, but an odd story of the way in which God used a man by the name of William Burns, William C. Burns, in a church in Dundee in Scotland in the 19th century. Now, um, 
Again, in most churches, or many churches since the 19th century, the name of William Burns would not necessarily be well known unless you read a book about missionaries. Because William Burns went on to be a very credible missionary. Um, I think India, but I'm not absolutely sure where William Burns went to, but he was a man who was very much used of God on the mission field. But he's not a well-known person. Uh, And before he left for the mission field, um, there was another man in in Scotland. His name is perhaps better known to most Christians, at least in the past hundred years, maybe not today, but Robert Murray McShane. Robert Murray McShane, he wrote hymn number 600 in our hymnal, and he's well known because Andrew Bonar wrote his memoirs and remains, which are ever so readable and ever so quotable. But anyway, McShane was a very much prominent minister of the gospel in Scotland and uh, was a great preacher whose sermons are reprinted to this day. And some of his sermons I read in, as a young Christian, I remember to this day. They're just that well-crafted. And yet, though McShane has great sermons, well-crafted sermons, notable minister of the gospel, he had a church that was a good church. It was a good-sized church in the prominent city of uh, Dundee in Scotland. And yet, his cry was, O oh Lord, that you would bring revival. That you would bring revival. And revival never came. Until McShane went off to Palestine, he went off with a group of people that were concerned about bringing the gospel to the Jews. And maybe that was something God was pleased to hear, or maybe just the fact he got out of town. William Burns comes in, and there's a notable revival that takes place in the church at Dundee. And many people were converted, many people came into the church, and McShane comes back to uh, Scotland, and he sees that God brought about the thing he desired most and was the focus of his prayers but you didn't use him as the instrument he used someone else and you say well how in the world does that happen because again it's not the exceeding greatness of the power of the vessel it's not the exceeding power of the greatness of the earthen earthen jar or the clay jar it's the exceeding greatness of the power of the living God God can use any vessel to accomplish his will and purposes so there should be no jealousy in ministry because it's not the person, it's the Lord. And it's the Lord we seek, it's the Lord's word we proclaim. And the blessing comes from God, and thanksgiving should be given to many hearts. Because the whole end of the game is not the advancement of our reputations, it's the advancement of the gospel of the grace of God. So the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And God's done many things in the history of his church to really point that out. That it's not uh, the ever so gifted man necessarily that's going to be the one whom God is pleased to use. He uses whom he wills in the way that he wills. And um, all glory belongs to him. And then Paul speaks, and again, Paul could probably boast in what he's done in his missionary career. The founding of churches throughout so many of the regions that he'd already been to and is going to go to. Um, But yet... Again, everything is to the glory of God. And God's able to humble a man like Paul. If he's ever tempted to pride, God puts him into a whole host of situations that we think a, 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 an earthen vessel would break. An earthen vessel simply would not survive. Again, the earthen vessel is fragile. It's extremely breakable. You put some pressure on it, it may, it may break. 
And yet, Paul is put through situation after situation after situation after situation, which you would think would break the man completely and fully and totally, and yet, that's not what occurs. Look at how he describes it. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. This pressure that was placed upon us, that's the meaning of the word that's translated affliction. This pressure that's been put in upon our lives by situations we would not want in our lives at all. And God's pleased to put, in the, put him in the pressure cooker of troubles that have come his way. And yet, he's not been crushed in the pressure cooker. It's like the three young men that were placed into the fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar and you thought they would simply burn the fire burned the, the guards that went and looked in and yet these three men are kept in the midst of the fire so Paul's been kept in the midst of the fiery furnace of affliction that he has been placed in there's conditions of perplexity that have come his way. He couldn't understand what, which is the next step to take. What's the proper way to go? He has no clue as to how to move in the future. And yet, circumstances like that that would drive others out of their minds with despair, Paul denies that any such thing is true of him. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. And you run out of town when people stone you to death as it happened in Lystra. Run you out of town like they did at Thessalonica and Berea. You might think, everybody hates me. Everybody has abandoned me. Where's the help going to come from? Paul says, I've been persecuted but not forsaken. The Lord stood with me. The Lord never abandoned me. He never forsook me. He never will. Struck down, but not destroyed. Maybe strike, struck down it might be the stoning incident in Lystra. He might be thinking of that, or some other thing, where actual stones crash in upon his head, and he's prostrate on the ground. He's struck down on the ground, and everybody thinks he's dead. And then he, takes, he just gets up again and moves on to the next town and preaches in the next city. Struck down, but not destroyed. Those are the incredible contrasts in terms of the external situations and conditions. But now there's an internal state and condition that Paul reflects on. The external ones are the afflictions, the pressures from without that do not crush him, the perplexities that the situation brings that does not drive him to despair, persecutors, again, external to him, that he's not forsaken, struck down by stones or whatever would strike him down to the ground, but not destroyed, and yet inwardly always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. That's a strange statement to make. Again, Paul sees his life as joined to Christ, not just in his spirit, not just in his soul, but his body is redeemed by the blood of Christ. We've been brought with a price. Glorify God in your bodies. As Paul thinks of his life in the body, 
And present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to the Lord, which is your spiritual service. When he conceives of life in the body, he sees himself as a dead man. Now he lives, of course, but you know, there's a sense in which he is a dead man. And he has been crucified together with Christ. He's in union with the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. And as a result of that, he's joined to the dying of Jesus. And in the message he brings, it's a message of the crucified Jesus. So what comes out of his mind, what comes out of his mouth, is just a reflection of what he sees as the wholeness of his life in the body. Where for him to live is Christ, and by that he means the crucified Christ. The Christ that died for his sins. The Christ that went to the cross bearing the weight of, of sin. And in his body is one crucified together with the Son of God. He says he dies daily. In the First Corinthians letter 15, he dies daily. Death is a reality. And that, and that speaks of his willingness to die. That speaks of the fact that he's had the sentence of death within himself in chapter 1. And who knows what that was. Was that an actual situation where uh, Paul was um, tried before a law court and they said, well, off with your head, Paul, we're going to execute you. Well, maybe, maybe not. But just he's prepared for that. He's prepared to die. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And the life that he lives is, is, is the life of someone who is dead with Christ who's died with Christ, who bears about in his body, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. But that's not where it ends. It's not just that he sees himself in union with the crucified Son of God and seeks to be conformed to the death of Christ. But he also sees the positive aspect of it in that the Christ that died for him rose for him as well. He says, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For all you see is death in Paul, you've not seen it all. You see a man who died with Christ. He died to the world. He died to the honors of the world. He's not out for the award of greatest preacher in the Roman Empire. He's not in that contest. He doesn't want the acclaim of, of the world. He wants the acclaim of his crucified and risen Lord, his Savior. He wants that Christ's life would be manifested in his life. In his life in the body. He's died to the world and its honors. He's died to sin and its, its lore. He's died to the things of this world. So he might live for the Christ that loved him, who died for him, and rose again. And so his concern is that his life would be again caught up in the reality of the dying and living Jesus. The Jesus that died for him and rose again from the dead. So you see, it's not just the gospel that's out there externally. It's not just, well, I know the gospel in my head and I preach it with my tongue, but his life reflects it. It's a cruciformed life. Conformed to the cross. Conformed to the death of Jesus. And conform to the life of Jesus as well. That the life of Jesus might be reflected and revealed in one who has died to the things of this world. And so that whole picture of death and resurrection that um, meets us in 
the reality of faith displayed in, 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 in baptism even, died with Christ, raised with Christ to newness of life, that that's just not something that is a one-time experience. It meets us at the beginning of the Christian life. That's something that should pervade the wholeness of our lives, that we are dying people. Death is a reality, but death to us has been transformed because of Christ's death. And Christ's death that has been embraced by us um, leads us in the midst of all the circumstances of life to know that death is not the final word. And so Christians can face all the horrors of this world with the hope of life beyond this life. Because Christ is risen, I will rise. Because Christ lives, I will live. And so, again, you've died to the world as Paul, Paul sees his life being that of, of a dead man caring about the body um, in his body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in, um, in our bodies. He said, but again, we live. He says, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Now that may be the threat of death. It's a constant thing. People are looking to kill us. People are looking to put us to death. Remember the plot that was against Paul when he's in arrest in, uh, in Caesarea? They, they plotted that no one was going to taste any food until Paul's dead. They entered into that conspiracy. Uh, the awareness that his life in this world may not be a lengthy thing was constantly before him. We're given over to death for Jesus' sake. Again, it's not the thing that preoccupies us. What preoccupies us is that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Our life is in mortal flesh. We're all, all people are going to die if Jesus doesn't return first. Death is a reality. But yet, we who believe in Jesus have everlasting life. We have a principle of life within us that will not die, will not come to be extinguished. Oh, fear not him that can kill the body, and after that can do nothing to you. Rather fear him who is able to cast both soul and body in hell. He's to be the object of your fear. And so Paul says the whole result of this understanding of who and what we are as ministers of the gospel clay jars in one sense and the clay jars carrying treasure. So that our being sustained in life and in ministry and continuing on, not despairing in the midst of affliction, not being crushed, not being forsaken, not being destroyed, is so that this message of the gospel that could continue. You see death at work in us, but the whole end of the thing, Paul says, as far as the Corinthians go at the end of verse 12, is life in you. Life in you. We're willing to be subjected to all of these hardships. We're willing to be subjected to all these difficulties because our concern is that the, God, the message of life will come to you. That the, that the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus will be embraced by you and that you will come to see the life of Christ um, through, the, through the death you see in us. Through the death that reflects the death of Christ. That life would be the ultimate end. Paul's not concerned necessarily to live a long life. He's concerned to live 
an impactful life, a life that makes a difference, a life that fulfills God's will and purpose for him as an apostle of Jesus, bringing the message of life unto a lost and needy world. Any questions about uh, Paul's understanding of himself as a minister of the gospel in terms of seeing himself in, as, as weakness, finding and, and death uh, emanating or leading to life and power as others come to hear the message of the gospel that his commitment to continue on in this ministry and not give up, not lose heart um, will bring. Barbara? So um, when he speaks of treasures in jars of clay we're considered the jars of clay and Jesus is the treasure that works within us? Uh, interesting. Um, well, again, I'm not sure. Sir, I'm not sure that he's really thinking of Christians in general as being jars of clay, but apostles. Again, he's making the contrast at the end of that passage: death works in us, but life in you. Uh, to an extent, every Christian in union with Jesus who really understands what the gospel is and does dies with to the world together with Christ. Dies to the things of the world. Paul should be our example in death as well as resurrection. And Jesus is our power in in death as well as resurrection. But Paul, at least in this passage, is making this contrast between himself as a gospel minister and the people of Corinth. Because again, there are people in this church of Corinth that have been estranged from him, separated from him, being influenced by these false teachers. And he's seeking to win them back. So he's making a contrast between how apostles live and labor and minister reflective of the message we preach the gospel of the death and resurrection of Christ we see death and resurrection in us we see those the things we preach are being lived out by us so he's making this contract between himself as, a, as an apostle um, and the contrast is not stated but it's kind of assumed is a contrast between the super apostles on the one hand that are influencing the church against him and also with the church itself that he's serving I'm serving you in the gospel, being willing to fight with beasts at Ephesus, he says in the first letter. I'm willing to suffer hardship. I'm willing to endure all things for the sake of God's elect. Uh, So he's he's pointing to his hardships. So I think that's the sense where he's referring to himself and uh, uh, the apostolic servants as um, jars of clay. Uh, You know, an apostle is, is, is a Christian, but just in a more consistent way than the general <laughs> Christians tend to be. But they kind of set forth to us examples as to what we should be. So all this he says of himself should be true of us. That we should be understanding ourselves in the way Paul understood himself. Just not always the case, but that's what ought to be. Uh, the other part of it is the treasures. Um, you know, I think that um, in this particular passage, it's likely he's talking about uh, the gospel message that's been entrusted to him is the treasures that are in these jars of clay. So, of course, that would include the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do, his faith in Christ. Um, but I, I believe he's thinking of treasures more of, of, of the gospel message, having received this uh, ministry by the mercy of God. Well, what kind of ministry? Well, it's the ministry of the New Covenant, he says in chapter uh, uh, 3. 
It's a ministry of life. It's a ministry where Paul proclaims the message of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So I think that's the treasure he's talking about, the treasure that's... Uh, uh, Paul uses the language um, in the Ephesian letter of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Uh, he prays that, he, that we might know um, the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Um, and he speaks about knowing the unsearchable uh, riches of Christ. So yes, Christ, but Christ in the gospel, Christ as crucified and risen would be, uh, I think, what he's talking about when he's, when he's talking about the treasures. Anything else? Question, comment? Yes, Tony. Uh, another word I've never heard you say before. Cruciform. Cruciform. To be formed like the crucifixion. Our lives conform to the crucified Jesus. So, yeah, modern writers tend to use the term cruciform quite a bit. I'm not sure where it emanated from, who first used it, but you run across that more in modern uh, literature, and you run across it quite a bit in a lot of modern authors. So I threw it in there. (laughs) Just that we're to be formed by the crucifixion of Christ. Paul says that I might know him and uh, the powers of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That's cruciformity, being conformed to his death, his death by crucifixion. So, well, let's press on. Um, Paul does something interesting in the words of verse 13. Uh, he gives a quote of the 116th Psalm, and um, you just wonder, it's not the most obvious text to. Uh, to come to life, I wonder if Paul read it in his devotions that morning, and he was thinking it through, its, uh, its importance and implication. And again, when you read Old Testament quotations, you really need to go back to the passage itself and read it in its entirety, because Paul, in um, making mention of uh, the portion that he, he mentions, is including its meaning in context. Um, so since he says we have, and again, he and his fellow apostles were the apostolic group that ministers along with him, we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. He says this spirit of faith we have that leads us not to, lo- not to fail, that leads us not to lose heart, that leads us to continue on, the spirit of faith that in the midst of uh, persecution isn't crushed or in the midst of affliction is not crushed, in the midst of persecution is not um, forsaken, in the midst of perplexity, not driven to despair. The spirit of faith that you see in us, the thing that motivates us, is um, according to what's been written. This isn't new to us. This isn't something that just the apostles have. This is something that's the spirit of faith of the godly at all times and in all generations. And it's displayed in the psalmist. When the psalmist in Psalm 19 says, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. 
So Paul is inspired in terms of continue on, continuing on in faith in the face of persecution, opposition, affliction, all the things that externally come to him by what's written in Psalm 116. Again, I'm not at all opposed to thinking it's something he recently had meditated upon and read in the scriptures and drew much comfort and encouragement from. And again, you go back into Psalm 116 and it's a, it's a psalm that does precisely um, minister to Paul in the condition he's speaking about of persecution, of affliction, of uh, perplexity. Psalm 116 and it's in verse 10 uh, that the quotation comes and it may I haven't really studied out whether it's the Hebrew or the Greek, it's likely the Greek translation that Paul is actually quoting but we read at least here in the ESV, I believed and um, Paul has therefore I spoke and here it's even when I spoke and so he's speaking out of faith faith leads to speaking that's I think the point of it um, and he's speaking in the light of, of affliction. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. That's what I said, because I'm afflicted. I'm going through the sort of thing Paul's going through, afflicted. But is he going to be crushed? Is he going to fold? Is he going to be losing heart? Giving up? Failing? Apparently not. Apparently not. Because the very next words after I'm greatly afflicted and all mankind are liars is what shall I render to Yahweh for his benefits to me? That seems like it's an awfully uh, it's a contrast you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't think went together. All men are liars. I'm greatly afflicted. What shall I render to Yahweh for all of his benefits to me? Well, it's in the midst of affliction and a lying world. In the midst of all the evil of what people can do to us. God is the God of salvation. God is the God of our rescue. God is the God of our hope. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. You go back into the beginning part of the psalm and he says, I love the Lord. I love Yahweh because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. He has inclined his ear to me and therefore I will call on him as long as I live. He's had an experience of prayer, of calling upon God's name. Um, and again, calling upon God's name is also found in verse 13. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. He's not just going to begin to do it, he's been doing it. He's had a long experience of calling upon the name of the Lord and calling upon the name of the Lord in conditions of affliction. In conditions where he realizes that all mankind are liars. In the midst of the reality that there's no help to be found out there. There's only help to be found in Yahweh. Verse 3, the snares of death encompassed me. Death was all around me. Bear in my body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested. The psalmist is expressing conditions very similar to what Paul's describing. Danger all around. Troubles in the world. 
the pangs of Sheol, probably the grave in this context, had hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. When just the apostle that goes through hardships in a fallen world. The psalmist knew hardships in a fallen world. What does he do in the midst of death and despair? Or temptations to despair. In the midst of the grave beckoning. In the midst of, there's the word, it is distressed, at least in the translation, and anguish. Well, those are times that he does what he does. I called upon the name of the Lord. O Yahweh, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is Yahweh, and righteous, and our God is merciful. He preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for Yahweh has dealt bountifully with you, for you've delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before Yahweh in the land of the living. But you see, I'll walk in, in, uh, um, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living as, um, as someone who's faced death, who's known the experience of the reality of the uncertainty of life, who've known how easy it would be for people just to snuff out my existence. And so there's a sense in which that, that picture of death surrounding him, encompassing him, um, is something that he, he brings into his life experience. Life, death, uh, life in this world is uncertain, and my confidence is not in the long continuation of life. It's based in the God who gives deliverance in the midst of death, the God who delivers us from the snare of death, the God who provides salvation, rescue for his people in all of their Affliction, And then in verse 15, he says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. God has that figured out as well. That's something that's near to his own heart. His dying people, his dying people will not be abandoned. Even in the face of death, life comes to the souls of the redeemed. And so it's an appropriate song. And Paul sees himself in a similar situation and he sees himself as having the same spirit as the psalm writer. Having the same spirit as the one who spoke in Psalm 116, I believed, therefore I have spoken. It's a good thing to not just keep the things you believe hidden in your heart and secretive and just hold it to yourself. It's good to have the spirit of faith that what we believe we're glad to speak. We speak in the presence of God. We speak in the presence of others. We're not ashamed of the things we believe. Because we believe in a God who raises the dead. We believe in the God who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. And who will raise us also up with Jesus. And will bring us with you into his presence so what Paul is saying is it's not sufficient just to enter into the presence of Jesus alone he wants to enter into the presence of his Lord together with you with those he loves with those he's labored for with those 
whom he's been willing to face death and troubles and afflictions and persecutions. And he's carried on. He's continued on. He's not lost heart and he's not failed because he's bringing the gospel as one who is crucified to the world. As one who has the death of Jesus or the dying of Jesus in his mortal body and also the resurrected Jesus to proclaim the message of a God who gives life to the dead. And so the end of the story is that um, his confidence is that he will be brought into the presence of the Lord whom he serves and not alone, but with a whole host of people who have been impacted by his life and his ministry who will bring us with you into his presence at the end of verse 14. He says, for it is all for your sake. All that we're enduring, all the troubles and hardships we've gone through, Corinthians understand it's for your sake. So great is our love for you. So great is our concern for you. So great is our interest for you that we will endure all things for you. It's for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So a lot of people want to have more and more people become Christians because that will redound to their glory. Look what a great worker in the, in the vineyard. Look at what that person has achieved. Well, Paul says the whole end of the story is not that he may attain, attain glory and honor, but the, as grace extends to more and more people, as more and more people become Christians through a ministry rooted in the gospel, rooted in the death and resurrection of Christ that not only proclaims the death and resurrection of Christ, but is conformed to the death and resurrection of Christ. More and more people will come to know this grace. And as more and more people come to know the grace of the gospel, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul loved the thought that Christ would be worshipped on that day by that great host of the redeemed that no man can number from every kindred, tongue, and tribe. And he's laboring towards that end that the praise of Christ would be increased through those who come to know him through the gospel message. And that's a running theme, really, throughout the letter that as more and more people have godly notions and godly lifestyles and godly understandings um, more praise is given to God more honor is given to God you find it in chapter 1 where Paul is speaking of um, that great hardship he experienced in Asia again um, same type of affliction that he just seems to be describing in chapter 4 yeah, I don't want you to be unaware he says in verse 8 of the affliction we experience in Asia we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Again, that's not so much, actually they did sentence us to die, but we felt as if they did. 
We felt that life really can't continue very long in this set of circumstances. But that was to make us to rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and will deliver us. That's our confidence. God is the God of rescue. God is the God of Psalm 116. God is the God that takes a people encompassed by death. And he's in the business of rescuing. He's in the business of protecting and preserving his people in the midst of the most dire extremity. On him we set our hope that he will deliver us again. And then he says, and you must help us. So we're not in this alone. We're in this with the community of the faithful helping us. And how do you help us? Not by coming along with us in our apostolic ministry, but by your prayers. You also must help us by prayer. And why did Paul want them to pray for him? So that it would increase the likelihood of his deliverance? If I have more people pray, well, whether God will deliver me, that may be. But if more and more people pray, it will be a certainty. Well, that's not his, his motive. He says the whole end of his desire that they would engage in prayer for him is so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. See, Paul doesn't have a doubt God's going to deliver him. He's delivered him before he's going to deliver him again. But if they don't pray, they don't give thanks. It'll just be the apostolic party will know about it, and they've prayed about it, and God's brought the deliverance. But you see, when he brings the church of Corinth into into the mix... They're praying, they're engaged, God delivers, which he's, he will do, because he's a faithful God and will hear the prayers of Paul and his party. But now they enjoy the reality of a prayer hearing and answering God, and they lift up their hearts in praise and thanksgiving to God. So again, that should be the end of this whole business of our prayer chains, of where we enlist many people to pray uh, for, for something. It's, it's not that we question whether the goodness of God will hear our prayers, whether the goodness of God will intervene in this situation of life. And so, well, we just need to get more people to pray so that it would be more likely that God will hear and God will answer and God will deliver. No, it's to the end that more people will enter into praise and thanksgiving. As we receive the deliverance, we'll be able to tell all the people that are praying for us, hey, the Lord's heard our prayers. And then praise Great revenues of praise are given to God. Similar emphases are found in chapter 8 and 9 about the whole matter of the um, offering for the needy saints in Jerusalem. Um, but we'll get, that, we'll get to that when we get there. But that's, that's a note that Paul uh, sounds again and again and again, enlisting the people of God in prayer uh, to the end that thanksgivings will be given to God in increasing measures. Uh, that his grace extends to more and more people, not just the more and more people pray, but more and more people get saved. That's the end of that. Well, again, more and more people will give praise and thanksgiving to God. So that should be our motive. When we ask for prayer, when we evangelize and seek the spread of the gospel, is that God would be praised. Thanksgivings would be increased to the glory of God. Well, we didn't get to the end of the chapter, but really the end uh, for, uh, 16 through 18 really blends in very well with chapter 5. So 
Uh, we'll take that up as a unit, uh, God willing, next week. So uh, read through particularly 16 uh, into chapter 5 and uh, at least the first 10 verses. It really does kind of hold together as a unit. And we'll take that up, God willing, when we gather next week. Let's go to the Lord and give him thanks for his word. Father, we're thankful for the way that the Apostle opens his heart to the Corinthians. And we are so blessed by the instruction that he gave to that church. And Lord, we pray that something of apostolic understanding of life as a believer would fill our own hearts with the recognition that it's not the the length of life that's the crucial thing. It's not that... Um, that we attain in this world great measures of acclaim and appreciation from, from uh, the people, but it's the question of how we honor you and serve you and, and live to your glory, uh, to uh, be useful in the work of the kingdom of God. And we're never going to be useful in the work of the kingdom of God if everything revolves around us. And so we pray that we would have a Christ-centered perspective, that we would have a perspective on life and death that accords with Paul's concern, that we bear about in our own bodies the dying of Jesus, that to us the important thing again is not uh, life in this world, but it's life in the age to come, uh, to die to the world and its lures, its, its applause, It's a claim is not something we should even consider. Help us to turn a deaf ear and seek the honor that belongs to you exclusively. So we ask you to hear our prayers. Help us to consider uh, these deep things of God that the Apostle Paul presents to us and gain much encouragement as we uh, reflect upon Uh, the way that you rescue your people in times of great distress and things that ordinarily would lead to despair, you prove yourself again and again and again to be a God who delivers. So receive our praise and thanksgiving and bless your word as we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.